I invite you to pray with me again before we step into the teaching. Father, we, we acknowledge that you reign. We're willing to declare that loudly and unashamedly. Father, make that true of us as we're in the midst of the workplace during the course of the week. Make that true of us in our settings where we're at with our family members and our friends. To not be ashamed to say that you reign. You said if we hold back from declaring that, that the rocks and the hills would cry out. So we want to be willing to say, along with all of creation, that you reign, Father. Because you reign and you are in control and because you know the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, there is no mystery to you. So, Father, we would ask that as we look into your word this morning, that you'd give us insight so that we would know your character and your nature better, that we would understand your ways. Father, I ask for every individual in this room, every person who's been here throughout the weekend, that we would have a capacity to retain this information, that your spirit would press it upon us. Father, translate that into a bold behavior on our behalf. So in respect to that, Father, we ask for eyes to see. We ask for ears to hear. And beyond that, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would serve as our teacher and our guide. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. It's fun to worship with you. It's been fun to work through this book of John as well, to work through this journey that the series that we're in is called The Portrait. If you're new to New Hope, we've been a, a number of weeks into studying the book of John, the gospel of John from the New Testament. And we discovered last week that Jesus really brings a lot of division. Individuals who don't know what to do with him, um, they end up having to make a decision of some type. Last week we looked at what that division specifically looked like. But when we understand that when God brings division, He still reigns, even in the midst of the division. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning as we step into the teaching. Does God reign in your life no matter what? No matter the circumstances. Even when things are at their very worst, does God reign over the hard, hard times? One of the things that we've discovered as we've worked through the book of John is that God is incredibly determined. You might say stubborn, but I'm not sure that's a theological term you can attach to God. So I'll say God is very determined. Nothing thwarts his plans. And this is another truism associated with that. God's ways are not your ways. And they're not my ways. And his thoughts are not my thoughts. He declared that for us. To help us understand that, look with me on the screen, Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then he goes on to say, as high as the heavens are above the earth, my ways are different than your ways. So in the midst of the really hard times, when it feels like God's not reigning, we're presented with a problem. See, I find that many people are open to a God, or we'll say a Jesus, who when he brings health and wealth and prosperity, they're willing to applaud a Jesus like that. That's the genie Jesus. Give us what we want. We'll rub the magic lamp. Give us our three wishes. But those same individuals have a hard time when he doesn't bring what they 
are satisfied with. And so that's what we're going to be confronted with this morning is a group of individuals in the midst of this text who believe that God's going to show up in one way and God shows up in another way. And it confuses them. He's not going to deliver as they expect. Now let me help you put this in the framework of which this setting is. In the first century, Jews associated godliness with prosperity. The more prosperous you were in materialism, the greater abundance that you had, they believed the more godly you were because God had blessed you. And so therefore, you're a more godly person. So prosperity was always associated with godliness. What do you do then when a Roman government comes into control over your nation and prosperity begins to evaporate and you've got cruel oppressors who ravage your land who take things from you, who tax you out of existence, who change your job structure, who tell you you can no longer worship in the way you're used to worshiping. What then? How do you respond when God brings those times? You're going to find this morning that the greatest enemy to Israel at this time, and I believe to the United States today, is not the enemy of what's happening in the world scene or even in our governments locally or nationally. The greatest enemy is sin. And the sin in the nation is what's destroying Israel in this particular setting. And so when God comes and shows up as God the deliverer, Savior of their personal lives, it's a lot for them to swallow. It's a very dangerous thing, church to tell individuals that they're preconceived of how God will show up, their preconceived ideas of how God will deliver needs adjusting, that they need to fine-tune their lens about how God performs. So before we step into the text this morning, I'm going to take you to a a side-room conversation that only a few people got to be part of with Jesus. He called his 12 guys to the side, did a big huddle with them, and told them some secrets about things that were going to happen to him. He didn't let the rest of the crowd know. Look with me up on the screen at Luke 18.34. Then he, meaning Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, if you stopped right there, you'd say, Okay, good thing. We're moving forward. But look at the next part. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now that'll mess with your theology if you believe that there's always health, wealth, and prosperity when God himself says, things aren't going to look so good here for the next few days. Matter of fact, they're going to get pretty tough. Look at that. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. He's going to be mocked mistreated. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be executed, scourged. It's a horrible form of death. Now, throughout this text that we're looking at this morning, there's a reoccurring theme that the disciples and the people who are surrounding themselves around Jesus on Palm Sunday, they had other ideas. They had another plan for what God was going to do. So for them, all the warning lights are going off. They can't understand what is he talking about. How do I know that? Look at the next verse, Luke 18, 34. But the disciples understood none of these things 
They didn't know what he's talking about. It didn't make sense to them. They just know the warning lights on the dashboard are flashing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's talking about going back to Jerusalem and getting killed. What kind of a game plan is that? Why would we want to be part of that? They thought he's going to deliver Israel from Roman bondage. Now, this morning as we work through this text, there's a lot of detail going on. And so it's going to feel like I'm rabbit trailing. That's because I am rabbit trailing, okay? But I'm just telling you in advance, there's two or three rabbit trails we're going to go down. And I know many of you love some of the details that are in Scripture. And so I want to give you uh, the first rabbit trail here in advance. And it has to do with prophecy. Now, this is something that if you lived in the first century, you would know this particular detail I'm about to give you. If you step back from the time of Jesus 500 years in time, you would find yourself in the midst of an individual by the name of Daniel. Daniel is one of the authors of the books of the Old Testament. And this same Daniel was visited by the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel said, I want you, Daniel, to write down these things, explain to the Jewish nation how they will know when the Messiah shows up. And so Daniel wrote down those things. You can read about it later today yourself in in Daniel chapter 9. But what he basically does is lays out God's calendar of events so they would know when the Messiah arrived. And it would begin when a Persian king by the name of Artaxerxes came in control. Now, where's Persia? It's what we call today Iran. So the Babylonians have in control the Jewish people. They're in captivity living in Iran. And the the Persian king by the name of Artaxerxes releases the Jewish people, sends them all the way back to Israel, and he issues a decree. He says, I want you to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And he gives the decree to a prophet by the name of Ezra. I want you to see the actual verse because it's very significant to this passage that we're looking at this morning. Daniel 9.25. This is the angel Gabriel speaking to Daniel. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree, meaning from Artaxerxes, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, meaning Jesus, the ruler, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now you want to scratch your head and say, what? (laughs) I don't get that. What's he talking about? Okay, in prophetic language, prophetic mathematics, a seven is always a year, okay? So seven sevens and 62 sevens is 69 times seven. What is 69 times 7 in prophetic language? 483 years. So the angel Gabriel said, here's a major sign for the entire nation of Israel, Daniel, that there is a Messiah coming, the one who will deliver the people. And it will be 62 sevens and seven sevens, meaning 69 sevens, 483 years. How significant is that? King Artaxerxes, when he issued the decree, you'll see this in the bullet points next, King Artaxerxes issued that decree in 457 B.C. We know that from historical documents today. He issued the decree sending the Israelites back to Israel. From 457 to A.D. 27 is the full number of exactly 483 years. A.D. 27, why is that significant? That's when Jesus showed up and began his three years of earthly ministry, the precise date of A.D. 27. You allow three years for his earthly work, and you find that he was executed in A.D. 30. Now, that's prophetic language coming from 500 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. 
So if you do the mathematics very quickly, you can see that God is a God of precise order. And one thing is undeniably clear. Jesus Christ is the only possible fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy that was written hundreds of years before. And all the first century people on Palm Sunday understood this. That's rabbit trail number one, okay? So you got that piece of information. Now rabbit trail number two. On Palm Sunday, this was in advance of Passover. Passover is this incredibly fascinating time among the Jewish people. They're celebrating the delivery of Egypt, Egypt setting free Israel during the time of Moses. And so they were passed over as a group of people. God allowed them to live when he killed all of the Egyptians. He delivered them. They're celebrating Passover week. Think Final Four in the United States, okay? It's a big deal. Everybody swarms into one city to celebrate this final collegiate basketball game. So the Final Four has got a very similar setting to this because it's the delight of the Jews. All the people that live in the country, they're celebrating. It's the despair of the Romans. The guards hate this. The soldiers had to be put on extra duty. They had to work double shifts. They didn't want to be part of this. And the population of the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, swells to huge numbers. Josephus says there was as few, and he's a historian that lived in the first century, there was as few as 1.3 million that came into the city, normally a city of 300,000 people, and as many as 2.5 million people. We're not quite sure how we can pin down the numbers, but what we know is there's this massive crowd, and then on top of that is the news of this Lazarus miracle. Lazarus who's been resurrected from the dead. Everybody wants to see him. So now you have those pieces put together as we step into John chapter 12 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 12 and verse 12. John only records about four verses of this story. So what we're going to do is we're going to use Matthew's view and Luke's view and John's view so that we get a good 360 degree comprehensive view of this setting. John chapter 12 and verse 12 says this. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, meaning the Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, I hate to burst your bubble, but Palm Sunday was actually probably Palm Monday, okay? And here's how we know that. Um, the Jewish people, when they celebrated the Sabbath, the, the day off in the week, it was Saturday, Shabbat. And on Saturday, they did nothing. They just totally chilled out. And so there's no way that the dinner that Mary and Martha and Lazarus threw for Jesus that we saw last week, that would not have happened on Saturday night because it would have required all the preparation. So we know that that dinner was, th was thrown for him on Sunday night. So when verse 12 says the next day, it's talking about Monday morning. And the streets are filled with people who are chattering, gossiping, going on. Where's Jesus? Is he coming? We don't know. Is, do you think he'll be here? Now during the night, the night before, Sunday night, we learned last week that Judas had gone and sold Jesus to the Romans, or, or to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, excuse me. Now the exchange of Jesus didn't actually take place until Thursday night. But he actually made the agreement with them for 30 pieces of silver the night before on Sunday night. Now, the leaders have this plan to execute Jesus. They're going to kill him, but not until after Passover because the crowd might revolt. 
So according to Matthew chapter 26, we understand that they're so afraid of the crowd that they decide to wait until the crowd disperses and the crowd's gone back home and then they're going to quietly kill Jesus. But because of the events that you're about to learn this morning, their hand is forced. Now verse 12 also tells us there's this really large crowd. Apparently, they came pouring out of the city to meet him meaning the capital city of Jerusalem, and they came from Bethany where they were at to see Lazarus. So there's this mass of humanity completely surrounding Jesus. That means that the people totally disregarded the law that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had set down. Look with me up on the screen, John eleven fifty seven. They had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So this huge crowd of Jewish people are totally ignoring the authorities. They're fueled by the resurrection of Lazarus and they flow together to form this massive throng and they're gonna escort Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, we learn next that there's some very specific details about how big this crowd was. One of them comes from Matthew 21.9. It says this, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. So the people who have come for Passover are in the city and they flow out of the city. The people who are up in Bethany, which is a bedroom community two miles away, they flow out behind him. So this isn't just hundreds. This isn't just thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are waving palm branches. Why are they doing that? Well, palm branches are like we wave an American flag today. We go to a parade and give our children flags to wave. It's the same thing. They didn't have flags of Israel at that time. The the palm branch is something that they waved for military victories when someone was a conqueror. And in the midst of waving these palm branches, they begin shouting the Hallel. Now, the Hallel is very familiar to a first century Jew. H-A-L-E-L-L. If you went to the temple in the morning to worship God, every morning the choir in the temple would be singing the Hallel. What is that? Well, that comes from the book of Psalms. Look with me up on the screen. Psalms 118 says this, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So this crowd around Jesus is chanting something that's very familiar to them. They hear it sung in the choir every morning at the temple. They're shouting it back to Jesus, but look very closely at the language that they use. Let's go back one slide. There we go. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, beseech, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, how interesting that they associate being saved with prosperity. You see the association there. Now, this phrase, do save, is very significant to the Palm Sunday story. Look at that phrase, do save, and let's look at that next slide now, yasha. It's a Hebrew word. Yasha, to be free, to be safe. So the crowd around Jesus, all these hundreds and thousands of people, are saying, Hosanna. What they're saying is, Yah-sha-na. 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 
It's been translated into the English language, Hosanna. That's been a misunderstanding that it means praise. What it actually means is, save us now. Save us now. Deliver us. Make us free. The word na on the end is the word now. Yasha na. Hosanna. They're crying out for political freedom. They want the occupiers of their country, the Romans, to be thrown out. Jesus is the miracle worker. They don't understand that they're telling the Lamb of God what to do. They're accompanying the Passover Lamb, and they're saying to Him, Save us now! Save us now! We want deliverance. Now, one of the ways we happen to know how big this crowd was is is this particular detail. Ten years after Jesus was killed, in 40 A.D., there was a census taken. Rome took a census of the area. One of the historians recorded how many Passover lambs were killed on Passover day. 260,000 yearling sheep were killed in six hours as an offering. Can you imagine the amount of blood that was spilling down into the valley? let alone that one sheep was sacrificed for every 10 people. So very quickly, you can do the math. 260,000 sheep times 10 people, 2,600,000 people. And you've got this huge crowd yelling out for victory over the Romans. Yah, Shah, Nah. And they're waving their patriotic banners, the palm branches. They want a military victory. Now in the midst of this, Jesus sends out two disciples. He sends them out to get something very specific that he needs. Look with me up on the screen, Matthew 21.1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Sent them to get what? Well, Zechariah, who's another prophet that had lived many years before, is very specific about what's going on here. He described this moment clearly. Look with me on the screen at Zechariah 9.9. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I can identify with that second phrase, your king is coming to you. It sounds majestic. It sounds regal. It sounds like splendor, just and endowed with salvation. But it's the next phrase I struggle with. He's got him on a donkey. You think of the king of kings riding on a donkey. Of all things, a colt. I want Jesus in a limousine. I, I want to see him on a white stallion horse. But God puts him on a donkey. Now understand, Jesus knew the prophecies too. He understood Zechariah. He understood Daniel. He knew what was written before. He made personally the arrangements for this particular day. He sent the disciples out to get the donkey because he understood the fulfillment of prophecy that's taking place. He understood exactly what this day would be. And I told you we're going to get some details from some of the other authors. Matthew is one of those. Matthew 21 says this, Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Now, I imagine that if I'm in the midst of that Jewish crowd that day, and I look around this huge surrounding of people, I see a lot of Roman soldiers also. Probably a lot of Roman soldiers trying to maintain crowd control because this huge crowd is about to get out of control. 
And I can imagine them smiling, looking at the Jewish form of celebration, thinking, that's no celebration. I mean, they should see Rome. Our generals ride in with white horses and chariots, and we throw rose petals. But they understand this is part of their job. It's, it's crowd control. At this point, every single eye is focused on Jesus. And I'm so impressed with the determination of our king because he understands they're looking for a king who will smash and shatter the Roman government. And in the midst of it, they're crying out, blessed is he who comes, yet Jesus is entering, entering humbly on a donkey. This phrase in verse 13, he who comes, is one that you might want to circle in your Bible. It's a prophetic prediction of the name of Jesus. If you think back to the time when John the Baptist was about to be executed, and John was being held in a prison cell, he had some guys who followed him. They called him his disciples. When John is about to be executed, he sends some of his disciples off to find Jesus. Now, mind you, John has been teaching about Jesus for several years. And then at this point, before he's about to be executed, he sends his disciples out to find Jesus, and they have one question. Because John's about to have his head cut off. And the one question is this, Master, John, your servant, he would like to know, are you the one or should we look for another? See, the one is a phrase that was always associated with the Messiah. So when they say, blessed is he who comes, that's prophetic language coming from the Old Testament. That's why John had them use it. And then Luke gives us one more detail, something that's going on here. Look with me on the screen at Luke 19. First of all, this is Luke's language in verse 41. And when he drew near the city, he wept over it. Verse 43, fast forward, this is Jesus talking. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now all these pieces that we're putting together help us to understand what's going on in this environment on the midst of what we call Palm Sunday. These are amazing words from Jesus. Don't know if you've ever saw this before, but they were fulfilled to the letter in A.D. 70. Now, mind you, Jesus is on the donkey. He's riding into Jerusalem. People are yelling, Yashana, Yashana, waving the banners. And in the midst of his descent, he stops, looks out over the city, and issues these words that we've just read. Why? Because the nation, the group of people, expected God to show up as the one who would conquer Rome. But God showed up differently than what they expected. And they, by the end of this week, reject Jesus. They turn on Him because God didn't turn up in the way that they expected Him to turn up. So as Jesus rode down the mountain, he knew all this stuff in the back of his mind was going on, and he utters this prophecy. Forty years later, when Rome swept in in A.D. 70, they killed 600,000 people. They wiped out the nation of Israel. It never recovered again until 1948. It was never reinstituted as a nation again. 
So thousands of years went by because they rejected Jesus. They turned their back on him. God brought out a punishment upon the nation of Israel and caused them to be punished by the nation of Rome. Now, I'll fill you in a little bit more on that detail, but Jesus in the midst of that says, because you didn't know that I was here. You didn't know that I was extending an invitation to you. You rejected me. Uh, In the midst of Rome slaughtering the people of Israel, against one of the general's commands, the soldiers went inside the temple and set the temple on fire. They burned the temple to the ground. But all the stones didn't collapse. However, the heat was so intense that the gold melted. And when the gold melted, it flowed down into the cracks of the floor and the walls. And so the soldiers, eager to get at the gold, they took apart the walls of the temple, leaving not one stone on top of another, fulfilling exactly what Jesus said in A.D. 30. A nation that had turned its back on God was facing God's punishment. So John 12, 14 now says this moving forward. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So we'll look at that and we'll say, okay, where did he get that? Where did that come from? Well, he sent his disciples out. Remember, he sent two guys out to get something that he needed. Look with me at Matthew 21 2. His directions to them were this. Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So Jesus arranges for the ride. This church is a deliberate act of self-disclosure. He's literally saying, here I am. Do you see me? It's a fulfillment of everything that's been written in the Old Testament. Here I am. This is not a sudden, reckless decision on Jesus' part. His whole life has been building up to this. And so this is a culmination of everything. We should be very careful to pay attention to the detail at this pinnacle moment. Why the donkey? Because when a Roman general rode into a city for purposes of war, he always rode in on a white horse. When a military conqueror wanted to lead a city to war, they always went out on a white horse. However, when a king came for purposes of peace and coronation to be anointed as a king, they always rode on a donkey. See, in this period of time, a donkey was esteemed It wasn't something that was despised. It was noble. People looked to it. Everybody understood this. So when you see Jesus riding on a donkey, the first century mindset looks at it and says, he's coming as a king. That's why they're saying, Yah-Shah-Nah, Yah-Shah-Nah. Now Matthew 21 gives us a few more insights. Look with me on the screen at this one, verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. And as a response, the owner said, what are you doing? Why are you taking our donkey? And their response was, well, Jesus told us to do it, so they, they took off with it. It's all the old owners need to know. What you see unfolding here is the rolling out of the red carpet. We do this today in our society. We roll out the red carpet for people who are victorious. This is an ancient custom to throw your coat down on the ground. It's as if to say, we are so submitted to you that you can even step on us if you need to. That's why they laid their coats down before kings. We do this today in New York City. We have what we call the Canyon of the Heroes. 
We have these individuals who come into the city after making some type of significant accomplishment. We call them ticker tape parades. It's like an ancient form of celebration, the Canyon of the Heroes, New York City. This happens to be the guys coming back from the Apollo 11 moon landing. But that's not an uncommon thing for society to celebrate a victorious warrior. Okay, with all that in your mind, move forward with me to verse 16 now. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the crowd is not the only one who doesn't get it. The crowd's not the only one who fails to grasp. Even his closest friends can't comprehend that God's not showing up as a conqueror to kick out the bad guys who are in politics. He's showing up as a savior. Do you know that even after the resurrection of Jesus, they still didn't get it? They could not put the pieces together until the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Look with me up on the screen at Acts 1.6. This is a question from the disciples. Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They asked that question after the resurrection. I mean, after all, Jesus, you got the greatest miracle of all in your back pocket. I mean, you raised yourself from the dead. Not to mention Lazarus. We can really take on Rome now. Is it at this time you're going to kick them out? And you're going to give us back our country? Jesus told them that they would understand when the Holy Spirit showed up. There's a reason that I pray for you and for myself every time we get together that God's Spirit would be our teacher because Jesus said the Holy Spirit is your guide. Look with me up on the screen at this passage, John 14, 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. You might want to note that one in your Bible if you ever have individuals ask you, how could these guys have written down all these things about Jesus? Specifically, Jesus is talking to the disciples right there and saying that the Holy Spirit is going to help you to have remembrance of the things that I said and you're going to be able to write them down. It will be an action of the Holy Spirit. But look at the character and the nature of God's Spirit. He is your teacher, church. He is the one that guides you. When you have your private quiet times and devotions, you spend time in God's Word, the Holy Spirit opens up your eyes to see things you wouldn't see on your own. He is the one who comes alongside you. Go with me now to John 12, 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So from their mindset, they're looking out the temple windows, and all they see is this huge crowd coming down the hillside. They're waving the banners. They're shouting, Yashana! And they think they've lost the battle. The entire world has gone after him. They didn't understand what was unfolding here. Do you know that this public presentation by Jesus forced the hands of the Jewish leaders to act? This incident right here demonstrates the sheer courage of Jesus because what he did is he set in motion the chain of events. He certainly knew, being omniscient, that they had pushed off his execution. 
until the following week when the crowd was gone and dispersed. But by doing this, it forced their hand so that his death would take place at the exact time that God promised. There's a passage in here that was haunting to me over the last two weeks as I was preparing for this morning. It haunted me yesterday and the day before. It haunted me right up until last night when I taught the Saturday night service, and it burns in my brain right now. And it comes from Luke 19. It's the passage about Jesus crying. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Here's why. I'm going to take you back to what I said in the beginning. It is a dangerous thing to tell people that their preconceived ideas about God need to be adjusted. Individuals who believe that God only shows up to give you prosperity and success no matter what miss the point that God shows up because he wants to save them from their sins first. Yes, God does want us to be prosperous. Yes, God does want to bless us. But unless we have our life in order with God first, our actions and our sin dealt with, that's where it really becomes hard for individuals. So what you see with the nation of Israel is that this is the same crowd celebrating him, Yahshana, who yelled out, crucify him, because God didn't do what they wanted him to do. They totally missed the way that God showed up, and he didn't deliver in the way they wanted him to deliver. So they turn on him. Many of the people that you associate yourself with, that I associate myself with, they, they can't handle this sometimes. Because along with this truth that we're talking about this morning is God confronting us with our sin to the degree that when he says you need a Savior, they curse him and turn their back on him and say, crucify him. We don't need him. We don't need him as our king. Here's why, church. God recognizes the greatest enemy in our life is not the political powers in control. It's sin in our world. And when I look at the nation of Israel, I have to think of the United States of America. I quickly translate over to this because I look here and I see that God allowed His chosen people, the nation that He established, to be destroyed because they turned their back on Jesus. They rejected him, and he cried over the city. You get that? Your God cried in the midst of a celebration because he knew what was coming to them. They had rejected him. And so punishment was carried out. And so when I think of the United States, I think of how far we've walked away from God and individuals expecting God to just continue to make us prosperous no matter what are in for a bit of a surprise You do not turn your back on God and not expect there not to be consequences. It doesn't matter what political power is in control. What matters is where you're at personally in relationship to your God and your king. That's why Jesus came. So I think these individuals who associated God's deliverance with prosperity were in for a bit of a surprise because it had to cause them disillusionment. Their their God calculator wasn't working right at that period of time. 
You have to associate their behavior with the punishment. Here's a truth for us to remember, though. The next time the king appears, he will not be riding on a donkey. We've been told that from Scripture. I want to remind you that this morning. We many times miss this passage, and I want to remind you of what's going on here in association with what you've just looked at. Because just as Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies to the letter in his first coming, he's going to fulfill all of the prophecies to the letter when he comes again. And when he comes again, he's going to be riding in great power. Look with me on the screen at Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. There's no donkey there, is there? See, you see the conquering king coming back, leading the armies of heaven, riding the white stallion. That's the Jesus I want to see. That's what he's coming back as. And he'll come back in glory with the armies of heaven accompanying him. But until that day, God is still extending the invitations. Think of it this way. 500 years before Jesus, God sent out the invitations. Hey, you want to know when the Messiah is coming? 483 years later, this is what he's going to look like and this is how he's going to come. People miss the invitations. Since then, God is still sending out the invitations. Hey, you want to know what God looks like? Look at his word. It's all right there. So deliberately this morning, we put in your bulletins when you came in the door little invitation cards for you to use this week. There's a detail. Last year on Easter weekend, over 900 people attended New Hope Church. Now on a typical weekend, there's about 500 people here between the three services. That means we almost doubled our numbers in one weekend. Why? Because everybody's kind of curious or they feel obligated on Easter Sunday to show up in church. If they have any kind of church background at all or just out of curiosity. So those invitation cards are in your bulletin this morning to allow you to go on God's behalf and extend the invitation to invite a friend or a family member to come next weekend so they can hear the greatest story in the history of the world church. It's an opportunity for you to be the hands and feet of Christ to extend the invitation. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do right now with me. Everything that you've heard, I'm just going to ask God to seal it in your hearts, to bury it down there deep so that you'll be bold on his behalf. So would you pray along with me? Father, first of all, I recognize that your, your church that has come together has taken time out of their week because they're dedicated to you. And they want to know more of your nature and character. And so, God, I thank you for being our teacher, for teaching through the power of the Holy Spirit, for explaining things to us that we might not have seen on our own. Father, as we step forward into this week, I ask that you would seal these truths that we've learned this morning into our heart, that your word would not return void, and that as a result of it, you would make us bold enough, bold enough, Father, to even invite friends to come and participate in our church next week. So God, for every man and woman student here, I ask that you give them the courage to use those invitation cards to extend them to a friend or a family member so that we might extend your invitation because you still want to see people come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to know him as their personal Savior. Implicit within your name, Father, 
is the desire to save. You are the Yashana, and you did it for us personally who named the name of Christ. Help us, Father, to be a representation of that to others. God, we ask all these things in the mighty name of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hope you have a great week, church. Look forward to seeing you next weekend.